Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. It says, then Jesus answered and said, while he taught them in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Remember that it's Tuesday in the Passion Week of the final week of Jesus's life. Tuesday is soon going to become Wednesday and then Wednesday is going to become Thursday and Jesus will be arrested. He will be tortured. He will be executed. This is the final week of his life in this particular passage. And in this chapter, three questions have been asked and three answers have been given. At first, they tried to trap Jesus so they could find a reason to accuse him or cause the people to be divided in their loyalty towards Jesus. Three questions. Number one, the question of responsibility to pay or not pay taxes in verses 13 through 17. And then there was the question of eternity and the resurrection which betrayed the religious leaders ignorance of God's word and ignorance of God's glorious power in verses 18 through 27. So responsibility and eternity then became a question of priority in verses 28 through 34. Out of all of the revelation that God has given in his word, where do our priorities lie? And you'll remember that Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God. With all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And you'll remember in verse 34, after this series of questions, people were reluctant to question him. Now it's Jesus' turn to ask the question. And it revolves around the single subject that is most important. And that is the identity of the Messiah. What do you think about Jesus? Whose son is he? That's the very question that's asked in Matthew twenty-two forty-two. And by the way, we can't overemphasize the importance of this question. On more than one occasion, you have heard me say, it doesn't matter what you're right about if you're wrong about Jesus. If you're wrong about Jesus, what does that mean? Mean Well, the answer to the question of the identity of Jesus is the difference between life and death. It's the difference between darkness and light. It's the difference between eternity with God or eternity apart from God. To be wrong about Jesus can cost everything. Because you will spend eternity somewhere. Either with Jesus or in torment apart from Jesus. And that comment might frighten you or it might annoy you. In the most quoted scripture in all of the New Testament, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather through him that the world might be saved. 
And it says he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And so the servant's question of identity should shake us to the core. In verse 35, look what it says. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? You'll remember that Jesus is the master teacher. He is the master preacher. Not only does Jesus know the scripture, but he knows how to apply the scripture in the in in the teaching setting. The religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were masters of quoting and citing authorities in the past in order to legitimize the present. But Jesus asks questions and the question is meant to evoke a response. Jesus is, in effect, inviting the religious leaders and the scribes to take a second look into the Bible, to peer into the scripture. By the way, the scribes are correct, insisting that the Messiah would be the son of David. That's the truth. But it's not the whole truth. There's more. The Messiah must be the son of David, but he also must be the son of God. And this is one of the reasons why it becomes such an important thing for you to be able to ask questions. You know, whether you have a father, mother, brother, sister, family, friend, it doesn't really matter. Almost everyone has an opinion about Jesus. Ask them the question, what do you think about Jesus? And invariably, you're going to get an answer. Some people think he's a good man, possibly the best man who's ever lived. And that's part of the problem today. Some people have a distorted or a perverted or a wrong idea about the Messiah. They might be completely wrong. They might be partially wrong. They might be partially right. They might be completely right. Jesus doesn't ask the direct question about himself, but rather what they already believed about the Messiah. Whose son is he? And by the way, from a Jewish tradition, from the Messianic tradition, and also from the revelation of their own scripture, they're going to have an idea about the descent of the Messiah, where his lineage is going to lie. And they knew and they believed that Jesus had to be a Jew. They understood that he had to be a human being because of Genesis chapter two and three and the fall of humanity. And remember what God said to the woman that you would bring forth a son. You all know the story about Noah's flood and you know the story of the, about the emergence of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then promises are made to Judah and then David. And so the true Messiah, they understood and believed that he had to be a Jew and that he had to be the literal offspring. Of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. He had to be a direct descendant of the king, David. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. 2 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 5. Psalm 89, verse 20. If we take just one, 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers. This is Samuel speaking to David. Actually, Nathan speaking to David, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. He makes it clear. This is a genetic link. This is offspring. And I establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne and I will establish his kingdom forever. Second Samuel seven fourteen. 
I will be his father and he will be my son. Sorry, Sun Young Moon, who just died at the age of 92, who said that he was the Messiah. But he didn't fit the credentials. Sun Young Moon was Korean. He wasn't Jewish. Sorry, David Koresh. I don't care if you told your followers and believers that you were the Messiah. Sorry, every self-proclaimed Messiah who simply doesn't make the prophetic grade. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 42, when Jesus asks this question, the scribes and the Pharisees respond to Jesus' question, whose son is the Messiah? And they said, David, true. But it's not the whole truth. You see, there were Jewish people who thought about all of the options of who the Messiah might be and what the Messiah must do. There were ancient writers in Jewish traditions who were antagonistic, not just simply towards Jesus' identity as the Messiah, but even about what the scriptures themselves said. They tried to discredit and deny. They painted Jesus as a fraud, as a magician, as a person who led Israel astray. The Roman Emperor Julian, the apostate in the 14th, or excuse me, the 4th century, wrote that an itinerant faith healer who really didn't do anything worthy of such a huge following was being followed even up until this day. That was in the 300s. In, in, in modern times, the enemies of Jesus tend to be complementary towards Jesus. They'll attack his followers as foolish and misguided and misinformed. The French philosopher Jacques Rousseau wrote, quote, When Plato described his imaginary righteous man loaded with all of the punishments of guilt yet meriting the rewards of virtue, he described exactly the character of Christ. Quote, the life and death of Jesus are those of a God, unquote. The poet Ralph Waldo Emerson held Jesus to be the most perfect man of all men who's ever appeared on the earth. Napoleon said, I know men and I'm here to tell you that Jesus was no man. You know what all of them had in common? None of them believed in him. But they still had a a great respect. Even a deep respect. Just like some of your friends and just like some of your family. Oh, they think Jesus is great. But they don't have all of the information. And so the servant cites prophecy. Look at verse 36. For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies your footstool. Jesus doesn't dispute the fact that the Messiah must be the son of David. Rather, Jesus brings up a little bit of a mystery, a kind of an enigma, a little riddle, if you will. How is it? How is it that the Messiah is both the son of David and the Lord of David? He cites Psalm 110, verse one, the Lord, big L, big O, big R, big D, because in the Old Testament, this is Jehovah. The Lord Jehovah said to my Lord, 
who is the Messiah. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David is making reference to Jehovah as Lord and the Messiah as Lord. The psalm continues, by the way, not in our text, but if you turn in your Bibles back to Psalm 110, verse 1, right after that, the psalm continues, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, or as people mispronounce it, Melchizedek. There's several things that I want to point out to you right away. Jesus quotes the psalm. As Jesus is quoting the psalm, he is quoting it as inspired scripture. You'll remember there are Sadducees who are around. There are Pharisees who are around. The Sadducees believe in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but they don't believe in the Psalms. Jesus cites David as the author, and then he cites the Holy Spirit as the source. Jesus believes in the inspiration of the scriptures. And because Jesus believes in the inspiration of the scriptures, Jesus cites the scriptures as the source for his information. Now, I want you to think about this because I know you have thought about it. You're thinking, Jesus, you're the second person of the Trinity. You're God in the flesh. Why don't you just turn them into bread pudding or turnip greens? Why don't you just turn them into barbecued ribs and then turn them back and then you'll go, Hey, there's something remarkable about this guy. I mean, someone who could turn you into something and then turn you back. Why not just promote and provoke a miracle at this point? But the listeners have the servant cite scripture as his source. You know, for those of you who don't believe in the power of the Bible, the word of God itself You should take notice. You see, scholars may put the scripture under the hot lens of critical scrutiny. Leaders may mock the Bible. There are people who who will make statements like, well, which part of the Bible are you going to choose to follow? Some may criticize the Bible and trivialize the Bible and marginalize the scripture. But Jesus teaches and preaches the scripture. When Charles Haddon Spurgeon was asked about defending the Bible, he simply said, there's no need to defend a lion. You simply let it out of its cage and it will defend itself. Our first obligation to the Bible, to the scripture, is not to defend it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying never defend it. Our first obligation to the scripture is to allow it to speak for itself and to defend itself. And here becomes part of the point. If you teach the Bible and preach the Bible, it will do what it always intended to do. It will wash you. It will cleanse you. It will inform you. This quote comes from an unknown source. I read it on my radio program last week. 
The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. Its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff. The pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, the Christian charter. Here paradise is restored and heaven is open and the gates of hell disclosed. Jesus is its grand subject. Our good the design and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. Read it slowly and frequently and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. It's given to you life. It will be opened at the judgment. It will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility. It will reward the greatest labor. It will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents, unquote. That is good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. The point? Jesus believed in the message of the scripture. Jesus believed in the majesty of the Messiah. Jesus claims to be David's Lord. Now look again at the text. The Lord said to my Lord. Even the most dense reader. Even the most childlike reader can see that there are two lords in the passage. So I'm not going to try and trick you. I'm not going to go, well, how many lords are in the passage? But maybe I will, okay? How many lords are in the passage? That's right, not one, two. Now, I want you to think about this. David's lord is Jehovah. And David's Lord is the Messiah. Look what the text itself says. Another Lord, the Lord speaks to David's Lord and the Lord Jehovah invites this Lord to occupy the place of supreme honor until all opposition has been silenced. Until every foe and enemy has been defeated, every God-honoring Jew, every God-fearing Jew knew to sit on the right hand of a king was to have the highest honor any monarch could bestow on any subject. This honor speaks of pleasure and approval and admiration and reward and love. And that a Jew, a carpenter, an itinerant preacher from Galilee could aspire to such exaltation was mind-numbing. And the religious leaders must have been mystified 
or angered or both or mystified and angered and alienated. David was the great king. He was a great father. He was a man after God's own heart. Yet here David bows reverently before the Messiah, his son, and yet somehow he is Lord. And you've got to understand something. In Jewish tradition, the the son was never greater than the father. Abraham was the father of the people. Abraham was greater than Isaac. Abraham was greater than Jacob because he was the father of both of them. And because Abraham was greater than Isaac and Jacob, he was greater than Moses. And because he was greater than Isaac and Jacob and Moses, then he was also greater than David. But David, the father, had to be greater than the son. And so now I want you to think about what you're reading. David bows reverently before the Messiah. He knows that he's the Lord. The Messiah, now think about what the text itself is saying. The Messiah will provide freedom. Look what it says. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This was an idiomatic expression. It was an Old Testament way of saying that you would put the top or the bottom of your foot on the top of their neck and it became a sign of subjugation. In other words, in other words, the Messiah will free Israel from all enslavement. Enslavement will be abolished. All men will be set free to function in Messiah's kingdom. The Messiah was sure to have victory over his enemies. And if he's going to have victory over his enemies, then he's going to also have victory over the enemies of Israel. What does all of this mean? It must mean that Israel would come to a place and gain the ascendancy and become a premier nation in Messiah's kingdom. But it also must mean that the Messiah would sit on his father's throne and he would bring peace to the world. And that he would bring peace to your world. Therefore, look what it says in verse 37. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? That's the question. Remember what the common view is. The common view among the religious leaders and even among the people is that the Messiah would be human. He's a simple human being. He will. How is it possible for him to be David's son and David's Lord? In asking this question, Jesus is making at least two points. He wants the listener to think of the Messiah, not simply in human terms, in terms of political power, in terms of temporal power, in terms of military power, in terms of institutional power, because that kind of way of thinking about him is going to be wholly inadequate. There is no way that a mere man can bring universal peace and universal justice And a perfect deliverance and the supremacy of the people and the nation of Israel. Imagine if some foolish pastor in Littleton, Colorado said. One day Israel will occupy a place of ascendancy and supremacy because a real Jesus will really return and occupy the throne of his father, David, and people will laugh. That's not possible. But even as we speak, violence is erupting all over the world. You know, the Muslim Brotherhood and the leader of Egypt just this week referred to the people of Israel as vampires. 
The leader of Iran called the people of Israel an insult to all of humanity. The Nazi empire called the Jews vermin and plague and refuse. And if you were to ask this question, what is the overwhelming view of the state of Israel? Is it favorable or unfavorable? Unfavorable is the right word. The overwhelming climate is one of disfavor. Now, I I want you to think about this. How is it even possible? The religious leaders are listening to the Messiah. They're under the yoke and the bondage of, of Rome. Do the Romans have a favorable view of Israel or an unfavorable view? It's unfavorable. As a matter of fact, within one generation, they will kill more than a million Jews. And then in another generation after that, they'll kill yet another million Jews. And the temple will be destroyed and the Jews will be scattered. Why were the religious leaders so confused about the Messiah? How did they miss the truth about the identity of Jesus? The religious leaders were unwilling to truly accept what the scriptures had to say about God's Messiah. They misread the scripture. They were unwilling to let the scripture speak for themselves concerning the Messiah's identity and ministry and destiny. And they didn't pay close attention to the exact words of the prophecies. The exact words of the prophecies is Abraham is going to have a son and Isaac is going to have a son and Jacob and Judah and David is going to have a son. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He is going to to he is going to provide a sacrifice for the sins of people. Now, think about how Jesus takes the exact words of the text to make his point about the Messiah. The religious leaders had studied their teachers and they had studied the authorities Way more than they studied the scriptures. The religious leaders were dogmatic about their own ideas and their own notions and their own opinions and their own beliefs about the future and how those events were going to unfold. Rather than looking at the word of God. And the son of God for answers. And look at how it closes. The servant heard Gladly, and the common people heard him gladly. Why? Why did the common people hear Jesus gladly? Do you think it's because they loved arousing debate? Do arguments and dissensions generate heat or light? If you're watching TV, if you are listening to the radio and people are yelling and screaming at each other. And as they yell and scream at each other, does that make you want to turn it up or does that make you want to turn it off? I don't know about you, but it makes me want to turn it off. Clearly, the average person loves seeing the arrogant and conceited religious leaders receive a strong dose of their own medicine. There's few things that are more frustrating than when religious leaders leave you with the impression that they have all of the answers to all of life's questions and the people hear Jesus gladly. In other words, the religious leaders are unable to come to grips with the question that Jesus is is asking clearly the Messiah is David's son, but clearly the the Messiah is David's Lord. And so do the religious leaders answer him? No. 
The people hear Jesus gladly. But there's no mention of the people trusting Jesus. Turning from their sin. Following Jesus. You know, it could be that people open up their Bible. They hear a message of hope. They hear it gladly. They come to church. But sadly, there's nothing inside of their heart that changes. There's nothing inside of their circumstances that change. So how are we to think about all of this? The people were apparently willing to accept the fact that the Messiah must be David's son. And clearly they they seem willing to accept the fact that he is David's Lord, even if they don't understand the full implications of what Jesus is saying. Nothing is said of the religious leaders and their silence is most troubling. But the answer is clear for those of us who know and love Jesus. How is it possible for the Messiah to be a real man? How is it possible that the Messiah must be God? As David's son, he will be human. As David's Lord, he will be divine. The only way Jesus can be both the son of David and the Lord of David is through this amazing thing that the Bible calls the incarnation. Remember the other messiahs? Behold, a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son. The only way is that Jesus will come in time and space and he will occupy the place of sinful humanity. Jesus claimed to be Jehovah. Jesus assumes the titles of deity. He forgives sins in Mark chapter 2 verses 10 and 11. Jesus assumed the power to raise the dead in John chapter 5 verse 25. And in verse 29, Jesus draws attention to to himself that, that he is the person who's going to bring every single human being who's ever lived on the planet back to life. Both the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. He is the one who brings them back to life. Jesus expected the same honor as the father in John chapter five, verse 23. Even earlier when we were singing the song, I'll fly away. Do you know what you were singing? I'll fly away to glory. You are inviting Jesus, the Lord of heaven, to make good his promise that he's going to bring you back to life. Jesus assumes not only the power to raise the dead, he expects the same honor as the father in John 5, 23. Jesus accepts worship. And by the way, the Old Testament forbade the worship of anyone but God. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, on nine separate occasions in the New Testament, Jesus receives worship. Matthew 8, verse 2. Matthew 9, verse 18. Matthew 14, verse 33. Matthew 28, Verse verse 17, if those were the only ones, it it should bring you to the point where you go, how is this even possible? Jesus claims to be the Messiah God in Isaiah. He's referred to as the mighty God in chapter nine, verse six. In Psalm 45, 6, it says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And it's repeated in the book of Hebrews. The Old Testament not only predicts that the Messiah Will come. But that the Messiah would be God. Jesus requests that men pray in his name. Jesus asks men to believe in him. In John chapter 14 verse 1. He says to his own disciples. You believe in God. 
believe also in me. In what way did they believe in God? That he was the self-existent God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He says, you take it for granted that there's a real God and this real God occupies eternity. You believe in God. How? By faith. He says, believe in me. How? By faith. In what way? In the same way that you believe in God. Jesus claims to be God. And by the way, the disciples claim that Jesus is God. It's one thing to claim that you are God. And it's another thing to get a monotheistic Jew to believe your claim. Many years ago, I remember seeing a stupid movie with Shirley MacLaine where she's almost in her underwear on the beach. She's going around in circles and she's saying, I am God. I am God. I am God. And I'm going, I'm so disappointed. I'm so disappointed. I'm so disappointed. If she's God, then obviously the Bible can't be true. John calls Jesus the first and the last in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. And also the word of God in John chapter 1, verse 1. Thomas calls Jesus God in John chapter 20, verse 28. Paul calls Jesus God in Romans chapter 9, verse 5. The Old Testament prophet calls Jesus God in one of the most overlooked passages in all of the scripture, in Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, literally says in the Hebrew text, why, when they look on me, this is Jehovah speaking, when they look on me, whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12:10 Jehovah is pierced. The New Testament writers don't hesitate to apply that very verse twice to Jesus, thereby affirming the identity of Jehovah pierced and Jesus crucified in John chapter 19 verse 37 in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. Jesus is Jehovah. Both Jesus and Jehovah are called creator, Isaiah 40:28, John 1:3, Colossians 1:15, savior, Isaiah 45:22, Isaiah 43:11, John 4:42, judge, Joel 3:12 and John 5:27, light, Isaiah 60 verse 9, John 8:12, the first and the last, Isaiah 41:4, Revelation 1:17, the creator of angels, Psalm 140 Five, five, Colossians 1 16. Think it through. Jehovah is creator. Jehovah is savior. Jehovah is judge. Jehovah is light. Jehovah is the first and the last. Jehovah is the creator of angels. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is the creator of angels. How is it possible that the Messiah can be David's son and David's Lord? 
He has to be David's son in order to fulfill the prophecy. And he has to be David's Lord in order to expunge the present problem of sin in your life. It is going to take God himself to make your wickedness go away. And not only for your wickedness to be cleansed and go away and forgiven, but for you to be reconciled to him and live with him forever. No wonder C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't expect, accept his claims to be God. This is the one thing we must never say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make the choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and you can call him Lord and God. But don't let us come up with any of the patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He never intended to do so. It was Augustine who said the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed in the Old Testament and the New Testament revealed. Jesus is unique in all of human history. There's never been a single person in all of history with his credentials, his coming, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. Orthodox Christianity makes the claim that he is God in human flesh. And if he is God in human flesh, then that means Christianity is exclusive and authoritative. If not, Christianity isn't substantially different from any other world religion. Does the Bible demonstrate that Jesus is David's son and David's Lord. If God did become a human being, what might you expect from this person? Before we answer that question, we have to first ask the question, why? 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 Why would God become a man? And the answer, of course, is that the Bible teaches that human beings are plagued and contaminated by sin and that our sin has separated us from God and that in order to satisfy God's holiness and righteousness and justice, a perfect man would have to come. He would have to be offered for our sin. He would have to be a perfect man, but he would also have to have the capacity in order to be the satisfying solution to not just the problem of your sin, but my sin and every person's sin. If God did become a man, what might you expect? Would you expect him to be born under unusual circumstances? Think virgin birth. Would you expect him to be without sin? Would you expect him to manifest the supernatural in the form of miracles? Would you expect him to have an acute sense of difference from every other human being? Would you expect him to say the greatest words that have ever been spoken? Would you expect him to have a lasting and universal influence? Think of the most important figures in all of human history. What if Shakespeare walked into the room? Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, Ernest Hemingway. If Jesus came into the room, we would fall down to our knees and we would attempt to kiss the hem of his garment. 
Napoleon said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius upon force? Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions would die for him. H.G. Wells said, is it any wonder that this Galilean is too large for our small hearts? Renan, the skeptic, said, whatever may be the surprise of the future, Jesus will never be surpassed. Renan, H.G. Wells, Napoleon, you know what they all had in common? None of them believed in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But they had an immense amount of respect, to be sure, concerning the historical Jesus. The personality of Jesus has made such an impact on human history that even after 2,000 years, the impact has never worn off. Each day there are persons who have a revolutionary encounter with Jesus. The great historian Kenneth Scott LaTourette said, as the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effect in history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on the planet. That influence seems not to be diminishing, but to be growing. And even now, right at this very very moment someone is going to wake up today and they're going to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior and their sins are going to be forgiven and they're going to be reconciled to God and they're going to be promised eternity and the effect of Jesus is going to continue even now. Philip Schaff said, the great historian, this Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, Conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, Napoleon. Without science and learning, he has shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and every philosopher and all scholars and every scholar. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since. That produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet without a single line. He has set more pins in motion and furnished themes for more sermons and orations and discussions and learned volumes and works of and songs of praise than every army of great men in both the past and the present. How is it possible for the Messiah to be David's son? And David's Lord. The Messiah. Has to be. Both David's son. And David's Lord. And because he can be David's Lord. He can be your Lord. And my Lord. No wonder. The religious leaders. Won't have very much to say to Jesus in the next few chapters. By the way, make a special note in your Bible. This is the last question that Jesus will ever ask the religious leaders. Don't you wonder why? Because if they're not prepared to answer this question, there's nothing left to be said. There's no more questions to be asked. Tell me what you think about Jesus. And if you have nothing to say, then neither do I.
Let's be clear. Jesus is in the business of changing lives and saving people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know the answer. How is it possible for the Messiah to be David's son and David's Lord? Why? An incarnation. Fulfillment of prophecy. The reality that the Messiah will come. The Messiah will give his life. He will die on a cruel cross, but he will rise from the dead to prove that he is in the business of changing people's hearts and changing people's lives. And Lord, we pray that we would embrace the scripture the way Jesus did, that we will believe its power and we will believe its truth and we will believe its ability to change people from the inside out. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who needs an honest answer to that very honest question. Who is Jesus? Really? Is he the Lord of heaven and earth? Is he the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead and who will return to establish his kingdom in honor and glory forever and ever? Who is this Jesus? Can he really forgive my sin? Can he provide for me a place in heaven? Who is this Jesus? Heavenly Father, I pray that each person from their heart would be able to pray in all sincerity. Heavenly Father, I pray that Jesus would be my Lord and my Savior. I pray that He would come into my heart. I pray that I could turn from my sin and turn to Jesus fully, finally, and forever. And that He would be the Lord of my life and the forgiver of my past and the redeemer of my future. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.